Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Unfortunately, when we recorded this episode, my conversation with Carl, my microphone malfunctioned for the first 30 minutes or so, so we don't have the complete episode. What's strange about that is the newsworthy topics we discussed, like the women's final four and a little bit about the men's draw, that's what was lost. So what we kept was, or what we were able to keep rather, was the second half of this episode with discussions of some less topical issues, but Carl had a lot of smart things to say as usual. So I wanted to keep it and package what we could salvage as episode 16. So to give you a little lead in after our truly intelligent but sadly lost discussion of the women's draw, we were talking a little bit about um, Denis Shapovalov and Andrei Rublev, of course, the, the two young players who broke through in a big way at the U.S. Open. And we discussed the differences between these two players. Carl and I agreed that Rublev might be the safer bet, but if you're picking someone to be a future number one, a guy with a really high upside, that might be Shapovalov, who has a lot of growing to do but has a really electric game. And... The part of the recording that we were able to salvage starts right about when I asked Carl, okay, we've talked about Shapovalov and Rublev, we've heard about their pros and cons. Is it possible that these guys could be, could be better than Alexander Zverev, even though Zverev is much more developed at this point, has accomplished a lot more? And we're going to pick up from the initial recording with his answer to that question. Yeah, Zverev is, is 20. I think that makes a lot of difference. I mean, we've seen how quickly things can change for Shapovalov. And things change quite quickly for Zverev. I mean, he, he was really good last year, but to win Rome against Djokovic in the final and then win Montreal against Federer in the final, that, that was a really fast, really big step up. And to to win D.C. and Montreal back-to-back, D.C. being a pretty tough field, He's 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 really made a big leap. So Rublev could conceivably make a big leap in the next 12 months, Shapovalov in the next 24 months, and and be in Zverev's place. And I still I still have some doubts about Zverev. I think it's it's notable that Rublev and Shapovalov went further than him in this tournament, and that doesn't feel it feels maybe somewhat fluky for them. I don't expect them to make the round of 16 of the next three or four majors, but. Zverev has really been mediocre in majors, really struggled in best of five, and clearly in terms of the way we usually rate players and their overall accomplishment, but also in terms of the um, the ranking points that are available, Zverev's going to hurt himself if he can't win more matches at majors. Yeah, and, and Zverev does have the disadvantage of being so tall, which I believe we talked about a little bit uh, three days ago in our last episode, and I was also talking about this yesterday with Chris Otto on the Tennis Now podcast, so I don't want to repeat myself too much, and also I wrote about this in The Economist a few days ago. Uh, Zverev seems to There's be plenty of Jeff and Carl available if you want to hear what we think about tennis. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're, if you're with us into minute 40 or whatever of this episode, then you're probably not worried about getting too much of us, so I shouldn't apologize for that is on you, but it is, I don't know, it's not a pressing issue because this is tennis analytics and it's not really, none of it's that pressing, but Alexander Zverev is 6'6". We've never had a number one player in the world who was 6'6". I mean, he could become the number one kind of by default because there's nobody else to beat him to it, but it's so hard for those guys to return well, and it's sort of sort of like we have a paradox coming up. Like, Zverev's 
achievements so far at a young age, his ranking at this point, the tournaments he's won this year, he seems to be on a collision course with number one, but we also have this sort of natural law that tall guys can't become number one. And obviously it's not a natural law, there's no reason he can't become number one. But I think that that's a will be a really interesting topic to research is what is stopping these guys exactly? And if if it is just something as basic as it's really tough to win enough return points when you're a tall guy, then we can look at Zverev's stats and say, okay, based on how many return points he's winning at age 20, can we expect him to improve very much? And I had the same conversation quite a bit a couple of years ago when Nick Kyrgios first broke through, because Nick Kyrgios is a, a horrible returner, and people were talking about him as a future number one, and I wrote an article basically basically saying that someone as who returns like Nick Kyrgios can't become number one. It's basically impossible. And a friend of ours, um, Suleiman Ijaz, did, did some research into how much players can improve and found that most players don't improve their return games very much. Uh, I've got a big caveat on that research because it didn't look at return points one adjusted for competition, which I think is, is a pretty key adjustment and one that I didn't even start making until a, a few months ago. So I think we really need to look into that and see what, based on what how Zverev is playing now, what his career peak or possible peak return points one is. But if we look at all that stuff and see that Zverev never going to become, say, a top 20 returner, then if we're looking at future number ones, maybe we shouldn't be talking about him. Maybe we should be talking about Rublev, Shapovalov, Chorich, all sorts of other guys of this generation who seem like credible contenders but don't have this major factor working against them. A couple of notes there. I I thought, okay, so we've seen Juan Martín del Potro get not that close to number one, but if he if he had stayed healthy with the ranking points he got from the U.S. Open and World Tour Finals in late 2009, he might have might have gotten there. And certainly, if he'd stayed healthy in the years after that, I think people thought of him as a potential future number one. Um, and I think of him as a really good returner, and I'm surprised to see he's pretty low down on the list of of return points on the tennis abstract ATP. Stats leaderboard, sponsored by no one. Uh, Zverev is actually ahead of him and in better company. I mean, he's right there with Dominique Team. He's still not in that top 20 neighborhood, but given that he's 20 and, and maybe has room to improve, I was, I was impressed to see that. Um, so it, it's, it's also got to be encouraging that at that age, he's, he's ranked where he is. On the other hand, Del Potro was... 20 when he won the U.S. Open, and so it could be something to do with returning combined with a higher proclivity for injuries, and hopefully for Zverev and for, for tennis fans, he's not going to have the, the level of injuries that Del Potro suffered, but Chilich has also at times um, had injuries, nothing like Del Potro, but uh, it hurt him in the Wimbledon final, for instance, against Federer. Yeah, that is a factor as well, and that's that's something that, that would be interesting to look into is just at a very basic level what the what the career trajectories are for people at various heights because there's not an obvious um, intuition about that because you're right, it does seem like tall guys can get injured more. On the other hand, you have really tall guys like Isner and Karlovich who, yes, they get injured, but they seem to be able to play forever. I mean, Karlovich is one of the oldest guys on tour, Isner is n- not that far off his peak and basically he's the same player he's always been and 
He's getting into his 30s. He's no end in sight there. So even Kevin Anderson, he's having his, his career best performance at a slam, and he's 31. So you can't play for a long time. And obviously, in the case of Del Potro, playing for a long time is a small consolation for losing so much time to injury during what was probably his peak. But obviously, tons of tons of research there. If anybody out there is looking for some projects, uh, I, I would love to see more on on aging trends, patterns, career trajectories for players of various heights, of various playing styles. And this is all stuff that is basically fresh meat. If you if, if you take on one of these projects, you're possibly the first person to do it and could come up with some very interesting results that I know we'd both be interested to see. So Carl, since you mentioned Del Potro, let's talk about the quarterfinals. 40, 45 minutes into this episode, I believe you were there last night, Federer Del Potro. What are your thoughts? I I took some flack for saying this on Twitter, but I thought it was mostly a well-played match by both guys with some bad decision-making or execution. I think people were confusing the two by Federer in some big moments, especially the third set tiebreaker when he had four set points and um, really erred on some net shots that you'd expect him to at least make in the court, if not if not win the point with. Um it, so it reminded me quite a bit of his last Grand Slam loss, which was over a year ago at Wimbledon to Milos Raonic, where through the first four sets, at least up to five, six or thereabouts, or five all, I guess, he was he was the better player, but he uh, double faulted, what was it, two straight times, three straight times at the end of the fourth set, and then Raonic, uh, Raonic won the fifth fairly easily. So... Yeah, I thought it was a, I thought it was a pretty good match. I thought Del Potro looked remarkably good, given that he had to go five sets to beat Dominic Team two days earlier. The first, actually, the first, there were three pretty short sets in that match. Maybe the first three, but it, it was still impressive because he looked so out of the tournament in those first two sets that he lost to Team, and didn't really look fatigued at all last night. Um, so. I, I think he should have a decent chance against Nadal in the in the semis. I mean, we, we've seen Nadal look dominant the last couple of rounds. We also haven't seen Nadal play a top 50 player, and he's a, he's actually not even getting a top 25 player in the semis, but he's getting a guy who certainly at his best is is one of the probably five or ten best players in the world and looks like he might be at his best right now. Yeah, that's exciting to think because those of us who are Federer fans, I think, a lot of us have adopted Del Potro as a as a backup option. So <laughs> in a way, it's good that if somebody if somebody had to beat Federer, it was him. You can, you can still come back and win. And one thing I'm interested in regarding this matchup between Nadal and Del Potro is just like the the hypothetical Nadal Federer match that didn't happen. It depends a lot on surface speed. Um, and I, I've made a couple comments just in the, in the last week or so watching the U.S. Open, that it, it looks to me like the courts are playing super slow. And maybe that's just because I'm watching a lot of Diego Schwartzman and <laughs> turns matches into that kind of tennis. But even even watching Schwartzman play, like it seems like that's the only way he could have won. Watching his match with Chilich, it just seemed like Chilich didn't have the same sort of... Um, couldn't apply the same sort of force that he normally would. And maybe Chilich was just off, or maybe I was watching from a weird camera angle. I mean, there's any number of explanations. It's really tough to to tell court speed with the naked eye. But 
based on what my naked eye did see, it looked a lot like the courts were playing slow, and that opened the door for people like Schwartzman and Pablo Carreño Busta to get this far. And I, I think I even even said that in my last Economist article. I just asserted that the courts were still playing slow, which is a little sloppy on my part, because when I, I ran the court speed numbers, if we go back two years to 2014 and 2015, the U.S. Open was 10% faster than tour average. And just a reminder for everybody who's not in, constantly reading my stuff, um, that just means that controlled for players that U.S. Open matches had 10% more aces than a tour average tournament. And that's it, that's about average for a hardcore tournament, that 10% above average. And typical caveat, aces aren't perfect, they don't tell you everything, but it does seem to be a pretty good proxy for court speed. Now, after two years ago, they got a lot slower. In 2016, based on the ace race controlled by player, the U.S. Open courts were 10% slower than average, which is almost as slow as a hard court's going to be. I mean, that was even with the indoor courts in Antwerp, which is where um, Diego Schwartzman made the final on an indoor hard court, which is just super weird. And I just assumed that was continuing to be the case. I just ran the numbers before we started recording this episode, and it turned out that it's pretty close to average faster than last year, slower than two years ago, so kind of a non-story. I kind of just wasted a minute of your time spelling out all this when I could have just said they're average. Jeff, it's but important to share maybe, negative results. I know. Sometimes it's, it feels like that's all I do. <laughs> it's the nature, the nature of tennis analytics sometimes. But, you know, to, to wrap this all up, the point is, it's not as fast as the U.S. Open has been. It's not fast for a hard court, but it's not super slow either. And what I wanted to do, if, if the Federer and Nadal match happened, is go back and run these court speed numbers for the last, and I guess, 13 years, for as long as those two have been playing each other, and see how close court speed correlated to the outcome of those matches. Because certainly the times that Federer has dominated Nadal are often on, on the fastest courts, like the Australian Open this year and some of the World Tour Finals in the past. And obviously, at the other end of the spectrum, that's where Nadal owns him. And I don't think Del Potro is quite so extreme. Obviously, he will take advantage of a fast court in a way that Nadal can't. Um, he seems to be a, maybe not so dependent on it as Federer is. But what do you think, Carl? Given that the, the U.S. Open is a little bit slow for a hard court, even if it's not as slow as last year, do you think that tilts things more in Nadal's favor? Slightly, definitely. Uh, a, a few thoughts on that. One is, I, I would have favored Nadal if Federer had had won last night. Certainly, if he'd won, despite the way he played, if he if he turned it around in the fourth set and, and the fifth, and also just because of potential fatigue. But he did not. He dominated Nadal in Indian Wells, which isn't the fastest hardcore tournament, and he didn't dominate, but won fairly easily in Miami this year. So. Maybe the tide Federer's turned uh, has extended to slower courts. I also think Federer at this tournament throughout didn't look as good as he had at that stage of the year. And I'd particularly be interested in seeing what the numbers show about his backhand, whether it um, whether it had returned to its uh, its sort of previous state after starting the year really well. Uh, in terms of the court speed here, um, the fact that it's 1% slower in terms of how the, the matches are being played, which, which is like a more precise way, I don't know what to call it, but sort of like speed of ball or speed of bounce, because it's not just, I think court implies surface, but 
the the weather matters too and it's been a very cold tournament like surprisingly cold and so i think that's had a really big effect and it's you know maybe even 20 degrees colder than than usual I know it's, it would be hard to do a study that kind of tries to separate that when looking at tournaments because we don't know the time of day that matches are played or the shade conditions. Um, but but I think that it's possible if the courts are playing about average that the organizers tried to make them play fast and the weather just didn't cooperate. In terms of Delpo, I think against most opponents, he doesn't really mind much on court speed. I mean, he's done well at Wimbledon and, and at the um, on grass in general, but he's also done really well on clay. He, he's twice led Federer by two sets to one in big matches at, in the French Open. And, he, you know, it, one of the reasons that a tall guy can do well on clay, including against someone like Nadal with all of his topspin, is he can handle the high bounce better, like it kind of comes into his strike zone. But... I I still worry that that that's just going to be a bigger advantage for Rafa than it is for Delpo. That uh, it, it's more about how Rafa is feeling than about how Delpo is. That the court speed might be neutral for Delpo. So if it isn't for Rafa, that's trouble. projection which is that it should be a maybe not easy match for Rafa but but a very likely Nadal win a couple of things in Del Potro's favor is that over the years he's one of the few people who's been able to beat Nadal I mean, he's five and eight lifetime against Nadal which you know isn't what he'd like it to be but compared to how most players outside of the big four play against Nadal it's pretty good uh, he's won the last two matchups including the Olympics last year um the other one was four years ago, so there's not much to say about that. But semifinals of the U.S. Open the year he won it, Del Potro just crushed him, 2-2-2. Two, two, and two. So for those of us who are rooting for Delpo in this one, uh, there is reason for hope. Uh, what would you set the, the number at, Carl, if you had to put a percentage odds on, on Nadal-Delpo? Well, I I think your your forecast gives Delpo more than a forty percent chance, which is seems a little optimistic. But I think forty percent feels right, partly just because of the, the there's a lot of uncertainty here. Delpo looked fine, like I said at the end of the match yesterday. Maybe he was even peaking at the end of the match, and he gets two days off. But Rafa has the extra day off and, and had a much easier. Sorry, not the extra day off, but the extra. I know five hours or so, and and also just had the much easier quarterfinal and shorter quarterfinal, and then there's also just the question with Nadal of what do we make of his tournament so far? He didn't look great in Montreal and Cincy, and his and and looked poor in his losses, and he hasn't faced a top fifty player here, and and this this would be a, quite a big step up in pedigree and probably quality of opponent. Yeah, and. It, it, Nadal has he's obviously had a great year. He was tremendous on clay. He put together decent hard court results. But if we are looking at Nadal on hard courts, we all remember the, the couple of years where he was a real threat. But he hasn't had a really good hard court tournament since the Australian Open. He, he's won plenty of matches. Um, I mean, looking at 
looking at earlier in the season, he did drub Marin Cilic on a hard court in Acapulco. He's, so he won plenty of matches against pretty good players, but he hasn't had any big wins on hard this whole season. So, like you say, we, we haven't seen him play anybody good. We have seen him lose sets to players who shouldn't even think about winning a set from Rafael Nadal. So it'll be interesting to see. I think Nadal has a lot to prove here. And having said that, there's always the chance Nadal's going to come out and look like peak Rafa and make us all look stupid and win this match in an hour and a half. But I think it's going to be a tough one. It's, it, to me, it's definitely a highlight of the four semifinals coming up these next few days. Rafa is 0-8 in his last hardcore finals. Can you, can you name his last hardcore title and who he beat in the final? Oh, I definitely cannot. Who is it? Gael Monfils in three sets in Doha. Uh, it's it's dated 2013 on your site, but it's, it's a tournament that ends in 2014 before the Australian Open. So we're talking three years and eight months. That is a long time. That would be quite a streak to end at the U.S. Open. Uh, it's going to be tough. So do you think the winner of the top half is pretty much guaranteed this title? <laughs> Never, ever, ever guaranteed, but uh, certainly the heavy favorite in the final. I think Anderson is is the bigger threat to that for, for you know, obvious reasons, just that he's the bigger hitter. And we've talked about how that, that can make someone more dangerous. But, yeah, it's, it's hard to see Anderson or Karina Busta winning the title. It'll probably be easier to see once one of them emerges and potentially emerges looking really good from that match. Okay, so we've talked about the guys who are uh, the players, men and women, who are, are in the draw still. What we haven't talked about too much are all these players who aren't. You posed an interesting hypothetical in our notes for this that I want to touch on before we wrap up this episode, which is all these players who are missing, Murray, Djokovic, Serena, Azarenka, and, and of course other others, given that both of these draws have turned out to be a little weak, the men's a lot more than the women's, um, if they were, it, it, it's tough to say because based on how they, they are playing right now, of course they're injured, they, they aren't competing. I don't know whether we should be talking about them at their peak or at some more practical, more realistic sub-peak level, but if they had been here, do you think, how do you think they would have fared against this draw this year? Yeah, I mean, given their current levels, I wouldn't, well, so... With, with Serena Williams, I, I don't know what, what to make of her current level. I mean, maybe she could have gotten out of the hospital and, and come here and won a few rounds. But, yeah, in general, I it's hard to see any of them winning the, this tournament. Um, but, but if they were, let's say, for Serena, Novak, and Andy about a year ago where they were and, and for Azarenka, uh, yeah, maybe also a year ago, she was she – was, playing a lot of good matches, uh, I, I could have probably seen any of them at least making the quarters or the semis here. I, I, um, I, w- I was wondering what Elo would say, because my guess is that, especially for Serena, Novak, and Andy, Elo is still really high on them and might even make one, one of them or two of them favorites in the tournament. So um, I, I'm going to stall a little while it sounds like maybe you're pulling that up. Uh <laughs> It's it's tricky because we we don't. It's hard to remember a, a bit what Novak and Andy looked like a year ago. But 
or, or in Novak's case, a little over a year ago, but but it was pretty pretty much accepted. It was tennis gospel that they were going to dominate tennis for a while, and certainly in 2017. So given some of the peers who are also not here, Federer maybe not being as peak, Rafa, we're not sure, They they we might have seen like a rematch of the 2012 final. What do you think? Well, what's interesting to me is in the case of Andy Murray, we not only not only is he gone, but we we know where he would have been in the draw because he pulled out yeah. so late, and he would have been in his empty bottom half, and obviously things could have played out totally differently. He could have gotten the toughest possible draw from the bottom half, and I don't know how he would have fared against an informed Alexander Zverev, but if he had showed up reasonably healthy, playing the way he's he's played when he has shown up for tournaments this year, then it's hard to imagine anybody stopping him in this bottom half. I mean, he... he, he he might have had a couple of awkward five-setters that made everybody say that he was doing what Andy Murray always does, which is make his life harder on himself than it needs to be. But it seems likely that he would have found himself in the final. And once he got to that final, then, as we say, it's one it's just one match. Anything could happen, especially if it's against Del Potro or a Nadal who's not that strong on the surface. So I think even, even with mediocre 2017 Andy Murray, this is a winnable tournament for him. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, I, I think I, I, I'm i overlooking a bit that he really did have pretty solid French Opens and Wimbledons and, you know, was a set for making the French Open final. So Murray, Murray in 2017 was not Murray in late 2016, but he was still, while playing, a, a real threat, and especially with Chilich and Zverev exiting early, why why wouldn't he have won that or won that half? Well, here's here's the big question on on this whole topic. I think that it, of course we don't know how Murray and Djokovic and all these other guys will come back, but it's tough to imagine them just magically healing and picking up where they left off or picking up where we thought they were going to to pick up at the beginning of 2017. So. Hopefully they will come back and we'll see some good tennis from them. But if they don't, or if they they fade into you know, mid tens ranking, mid teens ranking, let's say, um, is this the sort of slam we can expect for the next I don't know three four years until a new crop of stars emerge? I mean, this seems depressing is the wrong word because I love draw chaos and surprising players in quarterfinals and semifinals, especially if they aren't Pablo Carreño, Busta, and Kevin Anderson. But it's kind of depressing when you don't have players who look really good. But do you think that's a possible outcome, that we could just have another 15 slams where there's no really inspiring tennis and not very many really great like Hall of Fame caliber players? Yeah, I think it's possible. I, I think if Rafa wins these his semi and then final and straight sets, the, the sort of after after the fact narrative, the ex post facto narrative will be, oh, this was just, you know, Rafa playing great. Um, but it could be that, that that's what we'll have is we'll still have one guy or maybe two guys well above everyone else. And the rest of the draw will feel like chaos, but you know, you're just playing your seven matches is the cliche they always say, but maybe that those two guys, hopefully being on separate halves of the draw most of the time just may just sort of play right through that chaos and and end up being the story of the tournament even if they're not halfway through so i think for a while we got used to there being four guys like that sometimes five sometimes three but anyway 
it, it, it feeling much more like an orderly tournament and that we might instead have what we've had a bit already this year. I mean, Wimbledon was somewhat open, but after the fact, it was, oh, well, Federer just cruised to the title. The French Open had some surprises, although more standard set of semifinalists, but the, the story really at the end was Rafa cruised to the, the title. So even if we have just one Hall of Fame lock in those later rounds, maybe maybe the tournament feels less open because he's just so far above everyone else. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's so valuable to run some of the mini studies that that I run. I haven't done it on on this tournament, but when we're talking about someone like Nadal having a really a really easy draw or the bottom half being really empty, you're right that when when we think about past tournaments, we never think about anything that happened in the first four rounds unless there's some really great thing, a really positive thing, like the the Sampras-Federer match at Wimbledon or something like that, or a big upset. Um, we forget about all the aggregate-level stuff that we don't have any choice but to talk about when the tournament is going on itself. So if we were to dig back into the the history of all these tournaments, it maybe we will find that several tournament winners or finalists did face not for qualifiers, because I believe that was a record, but some of the easy draws that we're seeing here. And in the end, like you say, in, in, in a couple of years, that we'll have forgotten all that. The narrative will be totally different. Uh, when you look at any player who racks up a lot of slams, especially in any other era than this one, it's often because they had a couple of easy draws. I mean, as as you say, Federer had, had a, a, was able to coast to one this year. Nadal was able to coast to one this year not to take anything away from them, but you usually don't get to double-digit slam totals by working really, really, really hard and beating every single one of the best players in the field all 10 Unless times. you're Novak That's Djokovic. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah, unless you are Novak Djokovic. And that brings me to my one other thought about Djokovic and Murray, which is that you mentioned recency bias in in the context of the, of the Nadal-Rublev match and how you were thinking about Rublev. And I'm not sure there's any better example of recency bias than the way it's almost impossible not to talk about Murray and Djokovic over the last year or so. Because I, I remember having the same conversation just nine, 12 months ago where it felt like, you know, we're hoping Federer and Rafa come back strong, but we don't really know. We're not expecting much from them. This seems like Murray and Djokovic's year to win it all. And, of course, we saw how that turned out. And now listen to us talking now. We're not making big big predictions for Rafa and Federer, so I guess we're chastened a little bit in that regard. But it's really tough to to say anything too positively forecasting Murray or Djokovic. But based on what we've seen this year and based on how how good we know they can play, it w- wouldn't be shocking to see Murray and Djokovic come back and sweep the slams next year. I mean, there's such a wide range of, of possible futures, even as near term as the 2018 Australian Open. Yeah. Uh, and and just to your point about occasionally having easy, relatively easy draws, having draws open up uh, and, and helping players get to that double-digit slam level, I think Rafa at the French Open and Federer at Wimbledon had medium to tough draws. Like Federer didn't face a top five opponent at Wimbledon, but he had four top 15s, two of them top 10 in the last four rounds, and and Rafa had, uh, I guess it was Team and then Vavrinka in the last two rounds, two of maybe the three or four best players on clay. 
but you know, I, I really think back to Federer in 2009 at the French Open and at Wimbledon and how much those opened up for him. Uh, looking back at it, it weren't that easy, but Soderling in a final at the French Open was was a was a nice turn, and, and just avoiding Rafa at both of them was was also very favorable for him. Didn't didn't play Djokovic or Mario Diver them either. So um, yeah, it's 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 definitely going to the they all count the same, even if the the final wasn't as memorable and. Uh, whoever wins this one will will have a Grand Slam title, even if it means that they they beat uh, Pablo Carreño Busta and Juan Martín Del Potro in the last two rounds. And again, j- just to, to tag one more thought on on this discussion of thinking about slams at the time and then later on in retrospect, is we don't have the whole story right now. So if let's say we're witnessing the the true resurgence of Juan Martín Del Potro and he wins two slams next year. So if that happens and Nadal beats him in straight sets on on Friday, then that's going to make Nadal's draw look much yep. harder. I mean, it doesn't change what Del Potro's ranking or seeding is right now. And I think a, a lot of times when when we're looking at um, when we're looking at draws in the past, you can't help but do that. I mean, if if somebody if somebody beat Federer in on route to a slam final in 2002, I mean, even if Federer wasn't really Federer at that point, you look at that draw and think, holy crap, he had to play Roger Federer. I mean, that might not be that much different than having to beat Andre Rublev right now. But obviously you can't look at it the same way. And and maybe maybe Rublev will go on to win six slams, and ten years from now we'll be looking at this, this Nadal draw and say, wow, he crushed Andre Rublev. So... Lots of different perspectives to have as as time goes by. Um, we are we, we've been going for quite a while, and we have plenty of notes that we're not going to get here get to today. But Carl, before we wrap this up, any other topics you want to touch on briefly before we call it quits? Yeah, for for those in New York, I think there's there's a very cool thing in New York today at the U.S. Open where it's it's free, and that's because of the rejiggering of the schedule and the roof enabling it where on Thursday, the second Thursday of the tournament, the only pro singles matches are the women's semis at night. So there are none in the day session. And even though I think all other forms of tennis are just as entertaining, I guess the market doesn't. So there's doubles of all varieties. There's junior singles and doubles, there's collegiate and there's wheelchair including wheelchair doubles on ash which is the first time wheelchair tennis has been played on ash you know as as a as an official match during the US Open i think that's really exciting i think it's always a shame that the paralympics keeps wheelchair tennis out of the US Open so it wasn't here last year and now it's not only here but on the big stage and um I think, you know, for people who are around and have time today and happen to be listening to this in time to to do it, it's worth going over there and and getting on the grounds for free. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not sure if you mentioned this in your list, Carl, but we also still have the junior events going on. That's a lot of the matches. Oh, I did. Junior singles and doubles, which, you know, junior doubles. you got to be hardcore for that. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty hardcore, even for me. But junior singles, quite the contrary. If you're the sort of person who's listening to this podcast, you, you might not know many of the names. It's pretty tough to keep up with the names in junior tennis unless you're really, really attentive to the news. But Amanda 
Anisimova. Yeah. I'm going to get it next time. Who we mentioned earlier, I believe she's still in the draw. Um, even if, if you just look for the top five or ten seeds in the boys and girls singles draws, you're going to see some players who are playing just ridiculously good tennis for 16 and 17, 18-year-olds. And if, if you've been to the U.S. Open, everybody talks about the atmosphere on Ash and the night matches and all that stuff. But I've been to the U.S. Open, I don't know, eight or ten different years, and my absolute favorite times being there are when it's half or more empty. And if you can go sit on court seven and watch a couple juniors on a half-empty court on Thursday while everybody's in Ash watching a men's quarterfinal or something, personally, I love it. So take Carl's advice, go out there, uh, get in free. I'm guessing it's the same situation for grounds passes tomorrow as well on Friday. Uh, so hopefully you'll take advantage, and if not this year, maybe next year. Um, so, Carl, thank you as usual. Let's wrap things up for episode 16. Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of the U.S. Open, and I think we're going to try to come back with you on early next week, maybe Monday, after the finals are in the books. So, Carl, thanks as always for joining My pleasure. Me. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next week.